Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Well, three friends were stranded on an island, deserted for a year. And one day they stumbled upon this ancient lamp that was sticking out of the sand and upon picking it up, a genie appeared. And after explaining that she had three wishes to grant, she decided that she would offer to each of the three one of those wishes. And so the first person thought about it and he said, you know, I really miss my wife and my children. I wish to go home. And poof, his wish was granted and he was gone. The second person said, yeah, I really miss my job and my dog. I wish to go home too. Poof, his wish was granted and he was gone. And the third person said, man, those two guys were my best friends. And I'm really lonely here without them. I sure wish they were back on this island with me. <laughs> Poof. You know, these kinds of displays of self-absorption, and self-interest with absolutely no regard for other people can make us cringe, right? We're very quick to disapprove of selfishness in other people. We actually have a tendency to justify our own selfishness or even be blind to our own selfish acts and we struggle every moment of the day to put the interests and the wishes and the needs of others before our own. We constantly struggle with that. And our selfishness is a result of our sinful nature. No one has to teach us how to be selfish. Someone has actually generated a pretty accurate list of toddler property laws. And if you just visit our nursery for probably less than two minutes, you'll start seeing some of these property laws at work. So here's a list of toddler property laws. If I like it, it's mine. If I can take it away from you, it's mine. If I had it a while ago, it's mine. If I say it's mine, it's mine. If it looks like mine, it's mine. If I say I saw it first, it's mine. If you're having fun with it, it's mine. (laughs) If you lay it down, it's mine. If it's broken, it's yours. (laughs) That's, That's pretty accurate. But at the same time, we have a tendency to assume that we simply outgrow these kinds of displays of selfishness. But do we? Or do we just get more sophisticated in our expressions of it? I mean, after all, consider that an entire generation of the 70s was dubbed the me generation. And shameless self-promotion seems to be thriving on social media where most of the pictures we post, and dare I say most of the pictures we're taking are of ourselves. And then we edit them before we display them. Self-interest, self-promotion, self-obsession, it's present in all of our hearts, including those of us who are followers of Jesus. And it was present in the hearts of the disciples in the Bible as well. We see this in Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. But in that passage, we also see that Jesus is calling us as his disciples to something different. He's calling us to the discipline of servanthood. Not self-interest or self-absorption, but to the discipline of servanthood. And so, to piggyback on, maybe this isn't on yet, to piggyback 
if I can get this thing to work. Yeah, this thing's not working. Can you advance that slide, Isaac? I'll try to figure this out. To piggyback on Pastor Bob's recent series on basic training, we're going to consider one last spiritual discipline, and that's the spiritual discipline of, I don't know why this isn't working. Well, there it goes. It's going the wrong direction now, though. Kind of. There we go. We're going to consider the discipline of servanthood from Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. So if you have your Bibles this morning, you can open them to Mark chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you should be able to find one in one of the chairs near you, in front of you, in one of the chairs, so you can open there to Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. Let's stand for the reading of the word. This is the word of God. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to baptize with the baptism or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. You can be seated. What we're seeing in this passage is that the serving Son of Man, calls his disciples to live out the discipline of servanthood. That's simply what we see. The serving Son of Man calls us as his disciples to live out the discipline of servanthood. Of servanthood. And he does this, he issues this call by doing three things. First, by challenging our motives for servanthood. Secondly, by describing our manner of servanthood. And then finally, by providing our model for servanthood. Okay, so those are our three points this morning. Let's look first at, boy, just cannot get this thing to work. Will you advance that, Isaac? Thank you. We'll look first at challenging our motives for servanthood in verses 35 through 43. So see that Jesus' call to the discipline of servanthood is occasioned by this encounter with James and John. Now, just as an aside, the parallel account in Matthew chapter 20 tells us that James and John's mother is also involved in making this request, but according to Mark's account, they come up to Jesus and they say, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. How brazen and forward and self-focused is that? Hey, Jesus, will you give us a blank check? It kind of reminds me of the questions that my kids will ask me sometimes. Hey, Dad, can you do me a favor? Wise fathers will generally answer that question by saying, well, that depends. 
What do you want me to do? Which is basically what Jesus says in verse 36. What do you want me to do for you? And then they say this. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Now at the heart of this request, Isaac, we want to advance. At the heart of this request is a desire for recognition, for honor, for position, for power, and for authority. That's what sitting at the right hand and the left hand signified. In other words, James and John want status. They want a title. They want what we could say the perks of being in with the king. But in this request, we see something about the motives of their heart in serving Jesus. For them, there's something about following Jesus that is self-promoting. Following Jesus is, is a path, at least on some level, of getting what they want. They approach Jesus almost as kind of a genie who grants wishes and makes no demands. Now, of course, as the other 10 hear of this, we're told in verse 41 that they're indignant. But why are they indignant? I mean, after all, Jesus does decline the request of James and John. He doesn't give them what they want. And so why are the other 10 indignant? Well, isn't it likely because James and John have the audacity to get to Jesus first and seek an advantage over them. And for the, these two disciples to get an advantage over them, to be honored above them is totally unacceptable for them. You know why it's totally unacceptable for them? Because their hearts are self-focused and self-promoting too. And we know this because this is actually the first time, not actually the first time, that we see the disciples jockeying for status and position. In the chapter right before this one, Mark chapter 9, we're told that Jesus asks them a question on the road. He says, what were you discussing on the way? And we read that they kept silent for on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So they've done this before, displaying this self-focused, self-interested, selfish, self-promoting quality of their hearts. Self-promoting, self-interested hearts. Does that sound familiar to you? It does to me. Because that's what's in my heart so much of the time. Far too often, I make everything about me. I want Jesus to do whatever I ask him to do. I want to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it. And I want you to assist me in getting what I want rather than proving to be an obstacle in my path. Orbit around me. Orbit around my schedule. Think the way I want you to think. Vote the way I want you to vote. Drive the way I want you to drive, and we'll all be happy. At least I'll be happy, which is the only thing that really matters when you're self-focused. You know, if I could modify a quote by Oliver Wilde, or Oscar Wilde, Oscar Wilde, whose novel, The Portrait of Dorian Gray, is actually a wonderful exploration of the destructiveness and spiritual fatality of narcissism and self-absorption and selfishness, but he has a quote, I'm going to modify it a little bit because I think we can make it a little bit more accurate. Uh, I've italicized what I've added. He leaves the italicized words out, but I think it's more accurate this way. And so I'd say it this way. Selfishness is not simply living as one wishes to live. It is asking other people to live as one wishes them to live as well. 
And those kinds of selfish tendencies are in our hearts. And because of that, you and I and James and John can serve in such a way that in the end is still self-interested. It's still about self-promotion. It's still about what's in it for me. And that's exactly why our motives need to be challenged in serving. Our motives need to be challenged because if our motives aren't challenged, our serving will always be about this. Go ahead and advance, Isaac. We will only serve those we deem worthy of our service. We won't go outside of that when we're self-interested. The next one is we'll only be serving if it will be properly recognized and appreciated. We'll only be serving, next one, Isaac, if it's reciprocated, if I get something back, if I'm rewarded. And the last one is we'll only be serving on our terms. When we feel like it, when it's convenient, and when it's easy. If I don't feel like it, if it's inconvenient and disruptive, and if it's difficult, I just won't do it. I won't serve in that way because it's self-interested, self-promoting service. And again, there is a kind of serving others in this, right? I mean, we can still do acts of service, but it stops short of what Jesus is calling us to do. It's, it's a kind of serving that we expect to find in the world where Jesus talks about it right here. He says, you know how the Gentiles do it. Always ruling over you, wanting to lord it over you, exercise authority because even their service is done for self-promoting. Even their service is done as a way for them to eventually get on top. And Jesus challenges that in verse 43 when he says, it shall not be so among you. That's what he says in verse 43. It's not to be that way among you. Because Jesus calls us to more than just the discipline of serving Are you with me? He calls us to more than just the discipline of serving because that can be done selfishly. He calls us to the discipline of servanthood. And we can begin to see the distinction between those two things when we hear Jesus describing our manner of servanthood in verses 43 and 44. That's the second point. We see Jesus in the text calling his disciples together and he says, okay, you want to talk about being great? Become a servant. You want to talk about being first? Become a slave. Do you hear that? Jesus is saying more than just do service. He's saying be a servant. Be a slave. Adopt the mindset of a servant and assume the posture of a slave toward others. That's what he's saying. Now I know this can seem inappropriate and insensitive to use such a strong term like slave given our nation's history and ongoing racial tensions that we see around us. But it's a legitimate translation of the word Jesus uses here. There's two words that are used here. One can be translated servant, the other slave. But it's good for us to bear in mind here that there is a tremendous difference between willingly and without coercion choosing to assume the posture of a slave out of obedience to Jesus' commands here and being enslaved against one's will or enslaving another one by force. There's a big, big difference between those two things. And Jesus is calling us to the first of those things, a willing choice without coercion to assume the posture of a slave. He's not calling us to the latter, to enslave others or be enslaved by force. This language is helpful because we see that he's not just calling us to serve. He's calling us to the discipline of servanthood. So when we look at these terms, 
it helps us see the manner of our servanthood. For example, first one, you're practicing servanthood when you don't assess who is worthy of your service. You don't stop to say, is this, is this person worth my serving or not? Remember that Jesus washed the feet of Peter, who denied him, and Judas, who betrayed him. He washed both their feet. And so we're practicing servanthood when we don't assess who is worthy of our service. We also are practicing servanthood when you don't require recognition, thanks, reward, or reciprocation for that service. We don't have to draw attention to the acts that we're doing, which we can do in all kinds of subtle ways, right? I find myself doing this passive-aggressively in my own house with comments like, hey, how'd you get those clean clothes? Where'd you find those clothes in your closet? Hey, how'd that dishwasher get emptied? Why, why do we make comments like that? Well, it's certainly not practicing the discipline of servanthood that doesn't need acknowledgement and recognition for those things. Also, you're practicing servanthood when you don't decide to serve only when the task is easy or convenient or when you feel like it. You're willing to accept that service has a cost. Serving biblically has a cost. Practicing servanthood recognizes that. And the last thing we can say as well is that you're practicing servanthood when you don't distinguish between small and large tasks. You'll do whatever is helpful and beneficial for those around you, whether it's a large task or a small task. And let's face it, most of the opportunities we have to render service to those around us tend to be in very small things on a daily basis. I mean, there's no limit to the kinds of opportunities we have for that. Simple things like putting things back where you found them, whether you're at home, whether you're at work, whether you're in a grocery store, whether you're at the gym, so other people can find them when they're looking for them. Just putting something back where you found it. Letting other people go in front of you in line. It's just a small act of service that probably only one person's ever going to know about. Cleaning things, cleaning dishes, cleaning toilets, doing laundry, folding laundry, putting laundry away. These are all things that need to be done. Somebody has to do them. Practicing servanthood is adopting a mindset where you say, I will do them. Regardless of how small, regardless of recognition, I will be the one to serve others through these small things. Taking time to listen is an act of service that we have multiple times through the day. Praying for others. And these, these kinds of servanthood acts really are going to feel pretty ordinary, mundane, and trivial. But the heart of a servant is not going to distinguish between these grand acts of service and smaller ones that will likely go unnoticed. John Newton writes this. He said, If two angels were to receive at the same moment a commission from God, one to go down and rule the earth's greatest empire, the other to go and sweep the streets of its meanest village, it would be a matter of entire indifference to each which service fell to his lot. For the joy of the angels lies only in obedience to God's will. 
That's servanthood. That's the mindset of servanthood. But this language of servant and slave also implies that we are to practice this all the time, in all kinds of places, everywhere, at home, at work, at church, to enter into situations with the mindset, not what can I get out of this? How can I be served? But how can I be a servant to others in this environment? How can I bless and build up others in this environment, not for my own interests, but to others' interests. And that includes the church. First Peter chapter four, verse 10 says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. We all have gifts, and we're called to serve one another with that gift. This is in the context of the local church, and there are all kinds of ways that you can volunteer to serve at New Life. Here are some of them. On Sunday morning, we need a number of people in place to minister well. We need discipleship hour teachers across the board. We need children. We need those to teach youth. I think, is youth covered right now, Andrew, for the most part? But in the future, we'll we'll need them. And we need adult teachers as well. Children's church, teachers and helpers. We need people to volunteer and serve in those areas. Ushers, coffee makers, greeters, people to work in the nursery, people to do slides, musicians, We need these just to make Sunday mornings work. We also have ministry teams that uh, have needs at this point in time. Youth ministry, events team, welcome team needs a chair. Interior design team also needs a chair. The marketing team needs a graphic designer. So there are all kinds of ministry teams that you can get involved in. You should see somewhere close to you one of these. Did we get these out, Jen? So this is actually a volunteer checklist. You You can... Look this over and and think about where you'll be able to serve. But we can also serve the community through ministries at New Life as well, through things like Elmcroft, which is a ministry to nursing home, Muncie Mission, Kids Hope, Light and Darkness, Reach Yorktown, all kinds of ways to serve. But we recognize that the local church is not the only place you're called to serve, right? We have other places, and to say yes to one thing means saying no to another, And so we recognize that there's limitations and you have to be prayerful and intentional about these things. And so my encouragement has always been not to volunteer for five or six different things. Pick one area of service and one ministry team that you can focus on and give yourself to in service to the local church. Don't feel like you have to sign up for three, four, five different things. To consider one and serve. But be prepared for that service to seem fairly small, to be easily overlooked. If you're doing sound or slides, the only time people are really going to recognize you is if you're messing up. And this, this wasn't even their fault. I don't know why this thing's not working. But generally you don't notice it. It's the same thing with the nursery. They're not even here. You don't even think about them. They're over there serving. People cleaning up after pitch-ins. Most people are gone, so most people don't see it. It seems small, gets overlooked. Oftentimes that service will go to people you think are not really worthy of that service. And it can be inconvenient and disruptive. Here's how one person describes it. Um, He says, wanted. Gifted volunteers for difficult service in the local expression of the kingdom of God. Motivation to serve should be obedience to God, gratitude, gladness, forgiveness, humility, and love. Service will rarely be glorious. Temptation to quit place of service 
will sometimes be strong. Volunteers must be faithful in spite of long hours, little or no visible results, and possibly no recognition except from God in eternity. No one may never know about it, but a servant is okay with that because it's this kind of service that defines greatness in the kingdom. That's what Jesus says. True greatness is not defined by how many people serve you. We may think that in the world that great people have butlers and maids and groundkeepers and cooks and bodyguards. Great people have a bunch of employees to serve them. Jesus says that's not how it really works in the kingdom. True greatness is defined in how many people you serve. But let's say even better, true greatness is found in how many people you become a servant to. That's where true greatness is found. Now you might be thinking at this point, since Jesus is talking about being great and being first, isn't he still encouraging our self-interested and self-promoting tendencies? In other words, isn't he just saying, okay, the true path to the recognition, acclaim, honor, and position that we all really crave is through servanthood. That's not what he's saying. You're missing it if you think that's what he's saying. What he's saying is true greatness lies in renouncing recognition power, position, status, title for the sake of others. It renounces that altogether and thinks nothing of it for the sake of others and for their interest and for their promotion. Someone said of Mother Teresa, her secret is that she is free to be nothing. Her secret is that she is free to be nothing and therefore God can use her for anything. Are you free to be nothing? Because that's what Jesus is talking about here. You want to be great? You want to be first? Become a servant. Become a slave. But Jesus doesn't point to Mother Teresa as an example because we have an even more excellent example. Because Jesus doesn't just call us to the the discipline of servanthood by challenging our motives and by describing our manner. He also provides our model of servanthood in verse 45. So that's the third point. Jesus isn't calling the 12 and he isn't calling us to something that he keeps himself exempt from. He's not exempt from what he's calling them to do. In verse 45 he says, for even the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When it comes to embracing the mindset of a servant and assuming the posture of a slave, Jesus points us to himself as our model. Because think about this. Think about as we see Jesus serve. He didn't discriminate between large and small acts of service. In the passage right before this, Jesus is talking about going to the cross. The greatest act of sacrificial service ever And in the passage right after the passage that we read, he's stopping on his way into Jerusalem, going to the cross to heal a blind man. We've already referenced in John 13, he stoops to wash the disciples' feet. Large acts of sacrifice and service, small acts of sacrificial service didn't matter. Jesus didn't discriminate between those things. He came to serve. He came to be a servant. Also, Jesus didn't only serve when it was easy or convenient or when he felt like it. 
Jesus assumed the posture of a servant, even if that meant saying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Let what I have to do to serve pass from me. But not as I will, but as you will. He remained a servant when it was hard, when it cost him everything. He also doesn't only serve those who will give thanks or who will reciprocate. He serves sleeping, fleeing, denying disciples. Not thankful ones, not grateful ones, fleeing ones. And in fact, he serves them in such a way that can't be reciprocated. We're told here that Jesus gives his life as a ransom. He gives his life as a ransom for us. We don't give our lives as a ransom for him. By definition, it can't be reciprocated. His service to us remains unique. But that language of ransom also teaches us that Jesus doesn't reserve his service to only those who are worthy. On the contrary, he serves specifically those who are unworthy unworthy of such service. This is embedded in this concept of ransom. Listen to what C.J. Mahaney writes. He explains, a ransom represented payment of a price required for deliverance from various forms of bondage, captivity, or condemnation that were common in those days. It wasn't a term associated with respectability. The person being ransomed was either a slave, an imprisoned enemy, or a condemned criminal. You hear that? That's us, slaves to sin, enemies to God, and breakers of his law. And Jesus gives himself in service to deliver us from that condition. And what he gives to deliver us is his life. He sheds his blood. Such is the servanthood of your savior toward you, Christian. Such is his servanthood toward you. And now this serving son of man calls us as his disciples to live out this discipline of servanthood. He calls us to live that out. So we see that servanthood is an amazing privilege because in it we reflect the servanthood of our Savior. It's a privilege, but it's hard. My flesh rails against it. Your flesh rails against it. And that's why we have to practice it as a discipline. We have to be disciplined and intentional about practicing. And the best way to cultivate the practice of servanthood and not just serving is to intentionally do things you don't like. Intentionally do things no one likes to do. And do them. And do them when no one can see them. I mean, that really cultivates this mindset of servanthood but your flesh will rail against it. it'll be really really hard you might wonder why do it well Donald Whitney writes this he says I read of a missionary in Africa who was asked if he really liked what he was doing and his response was shocking do I like this work he said no my wife and I don't like dirt we do not like crawling into vile huts through goat refuse But is man to do nothing for Christ he does not like? God pity him, if not. Liking or disliking has nothing to do with it. We have our orders to go, and we go. Love constrains us. 
Why practice the discipline of servanthood? Love. Love constrains us. Love for God, love for Jesus, and love for others. You know, as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about why do we expend so much of our limited time and energy caring for babies? Babies. Changing their smelly diapers, wiping their dirty bottoms, rocking them, feeding them, clothing them, getting up in the middle of the night with them, having our sleep disrupted for them. Why do we do that? Because they're so grateful? Because it's so quickly reciprocated? Because it's glamorous and everybody celebrates that kind of service? Because it's easy and convenient? No. We do it because we love them. And what Jesus is saying here is we're to extend that kind of sacrificial serving love to everybody. Because Jesus has extended even greater sacrificial serving love to us. We love because Jesus loves us. We serve others in love because Jesus has served us in love. We give ourselves in service because Jesus gave himself for us. And because he gives us that service, we're transformed into servants. James and John are transformed. The very guys who asked this question in our text, we learn about later in scripture that James is the first Christian martyr that we read about. He gives up his life fulfilling part of this language that Jesus uses here about being baptized with the baptism he's baptized with and drinking that cup. And his brother John wrote this in 1 John 3.16. Jesus laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. They were transformed by Jesus giving his life as a ransom for them. Are you being transformed into a servant? May God give us all grace to live out this discipline of servanthood. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we celebrate and rejoice this morning in these words of our Savior that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. And as we look to him, as we rejoice in him, by your grace and by your spirit working in our hearts, may we become more like him so that the world might see the kind of wonderful Savior we have who saves sinners. Help us to do that by your grace and serve one another faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen.